Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology. My name is Anna Domnai, and I'm the host of this channel. Today, we'll be talking to Elizabeth Dunn about her book, No Path Home, Humanitarian Camps and the Grief of Displacement. Elizabeth Dunn, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Um, first, I would like to ask you if you could tell me and the audience something about yourself. What is your professional background and how did you become interested in the topic of displacement, especially in Georgia? Yeah, uh, I'm uh, trained as an anthropologist, but for the last 20 years, I have been a professor of geography, human geography. So in 2008, I was um, planning on doing a project which related to agriculture in Georgia. I'd been working in Georgia for about seven years and uh, had become quite interested in things around agricultural development. So I'd gotten a Fulbright to go to Georgia for a year. And uh, I had left my house in Denver and rented out my house and sold my car and come to Bloomington, Indiana, uh, where I um, was learning Georgian. It was the only place in the country then to learn Georgian. So I'd taken like an eight-week class in Georgian. So it, it was the night before we were about to leave to fly to Georgia, actually, for a year. Um, And I'm in my car and the phone rings and uh, it's the State Department. And they said, where are you? And I said, well, I'm in my car. We're getting ready to drive to the airport. And they said, don't get on the plane. The Russians have invaded. They've bombed the airport. And that was sort of the day that changed my life. Like it changed the life of everyone that I um, eventually worked with. So I didn't get to go to Georgia then. I ended up staying back in the United States. But in the following January, my five-year-old and I, he was six by then, um, went to Georgia. Uh, the Russians had pulled back behind the administrative boundary line with South Ossetia. And uh, I went looking for the farmers I'd been hoping to do this project with. And they had all been ethnically cleansed. Um, so when I found them, they were moving into camps uh, along the administrative boundary line with South Ossetia. And their first day in these camps was my first day in the camps. Um, and so I've been following them ever since. Um, it's been uh, 11 years this year. Uh, they are still displaced. They are still living in these camps or settlements. Um, and very little has changed in over a decade. Wow, okay, that's really interesting. Um, before we get into details about the book, I would like to ask a question about the structure of the book. Um, between what I would call the, the regular chapters, maybe, you sometimes put something that you called intertexts, in which you discuss the philosophical ideas of Ellen Badiou. Um, can you explain how you came up with that structure and why you found his ideas helpful, especially for your, for your work? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a tension uh, in many books that comes from the dual nature of our audience, right? So 
you know that that for an academic book, there's basically going to be two groups reading your book. One group is your peers, um, other anthropologists, other human geographers. And the second group is students. And my first book, which was about Poland, sold extraordinarily well. It sold something like 10,000 copies um, because it had been written in a way, I think, that was straightforward enough that it could engage students. And it's been anthologized in textbooks on anthropology for students. And it's been taught to students for many years in classes on globalization. And so, you know, uh, I'm smart enough to know what I'm good at and what I'm not good at, I think. Uh, and one of the things I'm good at is, is writing in a really plain spoken, straightforward way. And I didn't want to ruin that in this book. I mean, I had things I wanted to say that I wanted to engage students with. But at the same time, the tension was that I was really thinking a lot about ontology, which I think is not uh, a topic that's easy to broach with undergraduate students. So I'd been thinking a lot about kind of the nature of being and what, what kinds of injuries displacement does. To, to the act of being for people or the environment in which they exist. Uh, and I wanted to talk about those things in a theoretical way, but I wanted to do it in a way that uh, if you were teaching this to an undergraduate class, you could skip or you could sort of take those chunks out um, without having them be completely disruptive and off-putting. So that was the idea of the intertext. It's just sort of like, hey, if this is your thing, read it. And if it's not your thing, skip it and move on to the next regular chapter. Mm -hmm. um, so in your book, you introduced the word adhocracy to describe the humanitarian system. Can you explain to the audience what you mean by that term and why it is important um, for understanding your analysis? Yeah. So, uh, you know, the research for this book was done before the 2015 crisis uh, uh, of mass migration. And so I think at that point, there was a widespread belief somehow that forced migration as, as disruptive and chaotic as it is in the wake of conflict is something that could somehow be managed through rational administration. And that idea is put forward by UNHCR, certainly, which has all sorts of metrics and plans and forms. It's, it's definitely an idea which is put forth by uh, government funders of aid who want particular kinds of reporting done, uh, who believe that projects that are done in a particular kind of bureaucratically organized way will tame the chaos of war uh, and make a kind of order which will allow for the pastoral governance in the Foucauldian sense of that term, the pastoral governance of a displaced population, that somehow if you can create bureaucratic and administrative order by giving people status, by having uh, well-planned communities where they're gridded out neatly and every tent or every little house has a space on that grid, by keeping extensive data about people's health or their opinions. That, that somehow creating that order will allow the aid agencies to transform displaced people 
and make them into appropriate subjects to be reinserted back into society. And that's the sense in which um, camps are not trash dumps, as Zygmunt Bauman thinks of them. They're not garbage heaps for a surplus population. In many senses, they're recycling centers, or they're meant to be recycling centers, where through a complicated and long process of pastoral care, you make these people who have lost their full humanity back into proper human subjects so you can reinsert them either back in their own society or in a host society. But the truth is that as much as humanitarians claim to be working on a principle of bureaucratic rationalization, in fact, much of what they do is not rational at all, but it's kind of guesswork, right? It's you don't know how many tents you need. You don't actually know whether people need cots or pots or telephones or medication. And so a lot of what humanitarians are doing all the time is uh, guessing, imagining, uh, trying to coordinate with hundreds or thousands of others, uh, humanitarian actors on the ground. So you never know if the project you're planning is already being carried out by somebody else. So there's all sorts of double coverage. There's all sorts of gaps. There's all sorts of irrationality in a system which is itself not chaos reducing, but chaos producing. And so I wanted to disrupt the notion that somehow aid agencies were acting in a Weberian rational way and start to talk about the irrational ways they act, the problems of coordination that produces and why that creates profound uncertainty for displaced people um, who then have to try and make a future in a situation where they have no idea what's coming next. Um, So that's what the idea of adhocracy is about. It's about um, the fact that aid agencies, in fact, make most of their decisions through rough approximation and they make those decisions on the fly. Um, you also wrote a whole chapter um, about how the system produces nothingness for the displaced people. Um, could you please explain how that happens if the humanitarian idea is all about giving at least something to the displaced persons? Yeah, I think one of the things that really struck me is whenever I would do an interview with an IDP, they would say the same thing. They'd say, we're getting nothing, right? The government has come, the aid agencies have come, and yet they give us nothing. They do nothing for us. We've been completely abandoned. <coughs> and when I brought that story, hold on just a sec. <coughs> when I brought that story to the aid agencies, their answer was, well, these people are just lying to you. They've, in fact, gotten a lot, but uh, they don't want to tell you because they're trying to get more out of you. And I didn't think that was true. In fact, I thought that there were, for complicated reasons, people were giving aid, being given aid that somehow didn't count, that somehow couldn't register as things. And that was really interesting to me. It, in many ways, what aid agencies do is is logistics, right? They're bringing 
physical items to displace people to replace what they have lost. And, and for many aid workers, that replacement restores the world that's been broken by forced migration, right? You lost your dining room table and chairs. Here's a table and chairs. You're whole again. But displaced people don't perceive it that way. And one of the reasons that I argue that they don't perceive it that way is that the items that they are being given don't fit into a kind of systemic grammar of of things and people and ideas around them that existed before the war. That they're that when we think about particular objects, they're usually embedded in a rich context with connections to all sorts of other objects and people and activities. And in the camps, that wasn't true. People's whole way of life had been so profoundly disrupted that they could get the, the table and the little chairs, but it wasn't actually a replacement for what they had lost because that table and chairs that they had lost had fit in a particular way into the lives they used to live. And those lives didn't exist anymore. So I became really interested in the ontological status of objects of aid and, and found that this kind of nothingness, this kind of emptiness came from a loss of ontological status for people. That it, it came out of a disruption of their ontological world. Um, so connected with the production of nothingness is what you call the void of being in the humanitarian condition. And at some point in the book, you describe the IDPs as abjects. Um, could you tell me in the audience what you mean by that? And do you feel like the... Humanitarians see IDPs in the void as abject people. <coughs> so think for a minute about um, the ontological status of the world you live in, right? Your world is created of this whole suite of people, objects, and things that are linked together in more or less stable ways. And we talk a lot, particularly when postmodernism was at its height, we talked a lot about the sort of chaos of the world and about how things were always changing and shifting. But in fact, for most of us, the world is pretty stable. Like, you know, in a given day, um, what things you will encounter, what people you will encounter, you have a basic grasp of how to engage with those people and the ideas and concepts that they'll bring to you. Um, for people who are newly displaced, that is not true, right? Their entire life worlds have literally been blown apart. And so it's not always clear to them what is happening. It's not clear to them who the people they're encountering are or what those people want from them or what kinds of ideas and assumptions those people are operating on. So when you're a newly displaced person and you encounter a foreigner, for example, um, until you have a grasp of who aid workers are and how their different agencies are related to each other and related to the government, until you have some clue about the aid system and what kinds of aid will be brought to you and what kinds won't, the world is extraordinarily confusing. And I think one of the interesting things that I found um, was 
the degree to which people just sat there. You know, they didn't do anything. They, they literally would sit there stunned for hours. And, and I think part of that is grief, but part of that is also disorientation. Like the world has just become so chaotic and confusing and you don't know what the hell to do. So you just sit there and stare for hours. And, and that was extraordinarily common that people were just immobilized by, by what they had been through. And that lasted, that phase lasted almost a year where people couldn't figure out which way to turn and so would just sit there. Um, so I called that period of time between the destruction of their previous lives and the creation of a new kind of life world, that period of in-betweenness was the void. <coughs> it's The void is a time when they are encountering the fragments of their old lives they're encountering fragments of the aid world and the assumptions around human behavior and human activity that comes out of that world. They're encountering new kinds of governance uh, from their own state and from other states. So in the, until that formation becomes stabilized in a way they understand um, and can start to act within, they remain in many ways profoundly disabled. And one of the things that I think um, we fail to appreciate about humanitarian aid is how long it keeps people in that void. And there's been a lot of talk in, in uh, refugee studies and in studies of humanitarian aid about waiting, about how long people are made to hold in a camp or, or wait in, in some kind of urban housing in a situation where they don't know if they're going to go or stay, they don't know if they're going to return home or move on to another country. Um, and so they're left in that limbo for a very long period of time. But I, I think that we very often attribute the kind of passivity um, and inability to reformulate their own lives to the waiting process. But in fact, what we don't understand is the ways in which the aid process itself, the the humanitarian condition with hundreds, if not thousands of aid agencies coming into camps and providing things on an ad hoc basis. We fail to understand the degree to which the existential chaos produced by that um, also keeps people in the void. It keeps them, it's, it's such an unpredictable situation that people really lose the ability to act in a way that allows them to produce their own futures. And so um, I think that that kind of voidishness or the way we trap people in an existential void comes out of the aid process, not out of the war. Um, and so I wanted to call attention to that disabling factor in humanitarian aid. Um, one of the things about calling people objects that, that, really struck me is that there's always been this discussion in uh, studies of humanitarian aid about whether the beneficiaries of aid are subjects, that is act actors who can then use this aid to reformulate their own lives to, you know, start new businesses and become good neoliberal entrepreneurs, or they will become 
students and parents in a way that the aid workers find acceptable. Uh, The aid workers want to work a lot on, on empowering women to turn them from objects into subjects. So there's been a lot of discussion about um, the degree to which the aid process can make people into acting subjects and the degree to which it, in fact, makes them into passive recipient objects. But I think we don't talk a lot about the reason that that process starts in the first place, which is that aid workers think of them as abjects. Um, as people who are so devastated, who live in a situation of such suffering that they are incapable of action. And I wanted to push back on that notion and say, look, these people are not abjects. They're people who are being prevented by aid itself from becoming the authors of their own life worlds. They're the constructors of their own lives because the uncertainty that aid produces is disabling them. So so I wanted to talk about the way they're being produced as abjects. I don't think they are abjects. You know, I don't uh <clears throat> I don't buy the Agambenian notion that once people enter a camp they're reduced to bare life, to mere biology. Um I think that that notion of them is uh is very much one produced by the aid process and it's a way that aid workers think about displaced people but it's really not the truth about them as human beings um they certainly have the capacity for subjectivity and for being active subjects and they're they very often are trying to work within this chaotic system to regain the status of subjects wow interesting um this brings me to another um question because in chapter six you explain how many people were full of distrust and that the figure of the devil became a way of making sense of the erosion of democratic sovereignty. Um since you were familiar with governmental personnel and the IDPs who sometimes accused you to be an um Ashmaki, if I'm not right. Eschmarki, um, yeah. yes. Um, a person who follows demonic counsel. Um, did you ever get between the front lines during during your research? So, <coughs> my argument in that chapter uh, has to do with the fact that the devil became a sort of omnipresent symbol in the camp, and people accused each other of being devils. Um, or of at least being influenced by the devil. I don't know how literal that was and how metaphorical. Um, and, and they certainly accused government personnel of being Ishmaqebi, people who are scheming and plotting and planning and taking advantage of others for their own personal gain. Um, and so one of the situations that characterizes life and displacement for many people is not solidarity with other people who've been displaced, who share this experience with you, but the sense that everyone or every family is on their own trying to take advantage to, of everyone else and the scheme and plot to get ahead. And, and that is a really disruptive situation for most people in the camps where I, were, where I worked because 
as villagers, they had experienced a fairly high degree of social solidarity. So, um, so this idea that distrust is the pervasive, uh, emotional state, or it's the basis of subjectivity in the humanitarian condition, I think is really an important insight. Um, so, yes, was I accused of being an Ishmaqi, a devil? Yes, all the time. Uh, many people assumed I was a government, I was reporting to the government. Uh, I, I think that is pretty common, especially in a society like Georgia, which has experienced um, a long history of state surveillance, particularly during the Soviet period. Uh, the camp where I worked was about a mile from the birthplace of Stalin. And I always, saw some irony in that, that that Stalinist experience and, and the experience of needing to hide your own information for fear that others would take advantage of it and use it against you, that really conditioned their response to the whole aid project. Um, and they were very often very reluctant to talk to me because it felt so much like a denunciation or it felt like I was spying on them, or it felt like I was trying to pit them against one another. Um, so I think I got caught, caught in that structure quite frequently, actually. And it took a long time to get past that and develop trust, even with a small number of people. I was, I was really struck by that because it was nothing like my previous experience in Poland, where after an initial period of distrust, I had a, a lot of trust among the people I worked with. And in the camps, I feel like I never fully gained the trust of most people. Okay. Um, at one point in your book, you described that old hierarchies among the people were not challenged. Um, how come that didn't happen since... Um, the IDPs lost everything through displacement and living in the humanitarian condition. Yeah. So I think, uh, I think that there's two kinds of hierarchies that are uh, disrupted and created. First of all, I think most of the hierarchies um, in this society were initially disrupted. Um, and I think the aid project um, means to disrupt many of them. You know, think about the whole nation of women's empowerment in the context of humanitarian aid. That is designed to take advantage of the destruction of social ties and the creation of a kind of crisis of meaning uh, and, and to re-engineer society in ways that the aid donors and the aid workers think is more appropriate. That's what women's empowerment in aid is all about overturning existing or pre-existing gender hierarchies. Um, and at the same time, after a massive social disruption like that, there's also a, a massive scramble for people to reestablish hierarchies that existed before. So, so in some cases, those hierarchies, particularly of gender or of uh, class status in, in, uh, within village-based communities, reestablished themselves pretty quickly. But in other cases, they were never reestablished. So one of the things I found that was really interesting is that 
there was a group of people who were identified as quote unquote IDP leaders or community leaders by the aid agencies. And those people generally had been active in local politics before the war. They were members of village councils. They were former mayors. They, uh, in fact, many of them had ties to the Soviet government uh, that had ended 25 years earlier. Um, so those people were the initial folks that were contacted by the aid agencies and brought into the distribution of aid as community leaders. But very quickly, it turned out that those people were not able to reestablish their authority within the community and that other kinds of leaders were emerging. Uh, so young people who could talk in the jargon of aid, for example, quickly rose up because they became kind of a, an easy group to interface with for the aid agencies. And so they began to challenge the uh, previous community leaders for power and authority in the community. Um, so that was a new kind of hierarchy. There was also a group of people who became what I call professional refugees, um, people who were being asked over and over by um, aid agencies to participate in their projects. And it's because they had become really adept at producing the kinds of answers and quote snippets and photographs that the aid workers needed to document those projects. And so they would be asked over and over again to participate in them because they could produce what the aid agencies really wanted, which was four color brochures and glossy PowerPoints and reports to their donors. So I don't, I don't think it's true that old hierarchies were unchallenged. I think they were in fact profoundly challenged and some, but not all of them were reestablished. Um, so I've got one last question. Um, with your work, you question the whole humanitarian system. At least that's how I read your book. Um, and I wonder, do you think humanitarianism and Europe in general have failed? It is still fueling authoritarianism as seen in Turkey, for example, and it keeps people in the void. So how can NGOs work together with governments to be productive and make sure that people find a way to make themselves a home again? How does it change the entire work of, of NGOs? <coughs> <coughs> Sorry. Um, yes, I think humanitarianism and uh, that European project of humanitarian aid have failed. I think that, that, the aid community itself recognizes that it's failed. Um, in 2016, I went to the World Humanitarian Summit in Istanbul, and it was a moment of incredible crisis for the aid community, not just because the massive flow of refugees the year before had challenged them in terms of volume, like just handling that many people, but because it had challenged the fundamental notions which animated the aid project or the humanitarian project since the end of World War II. The notion that you can put people into camps and provide them with material goods and that this somehow is an answer to the crisis of forced migration 
that idea is dead now. I mean, in that way, I keep thinking if I had published this book three years earlier, I would have been a prophet. Um, but by the time it, the book came out, I think that the idea that the whole aid enterprise was a massive failure was widely accepted in the aid community. Uh, there was a, a UNHCR official who tried to say, the system isn't broken, it's broke. But it wasn't just a question of lack of funding. I mean, I, I actually think they have an enormous amount of funding. It's growing every year, or it was until recently. And and yet they still are not making very effective use of it. Uh, only about 32%, 32 cents of every dollar makes it to beneficiaries. And the rest is eaten up by the aid process itself and by aid agencies. Um, so I think that we have been in a moment for the last three years where people are struggling to rethink what humanitarian aid is and how it should function. One of the things that has happened in the last three years since the book went to press is that the very notion of humanitarianism has changed. And it's become, instead of about pastoral care for the displaced, it's become securitized. So it's really about care for local populations by protecting them from refugees. Right, not protection for displaced people, but protection from displaced people. So you get a situation in which the Trump administration can, with a straight face, ask for three point three billion dollars in what it calls humanitarian aid, and then it's revealed that 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 humanitarian aid is actually to build more detention centers for people running for their lives from Central America who end up on the U.S.-Mexico border, right? Like policing them, detaining them, deporting them, creating this gulag archipelago inside the United States, that has become a part of the humanitarian process in the last three years. The same is true in Europe with this process of offshoring people. So the idea that you can provide humanitarian aid to keep them outside your borders is an idea which I think would be repellent to aid workers 15 years ago, but is now widely accepted today. So when the European Union offers $9 billion to Turkey, and when that, that money is shuffled around and used to send the Turkish military into Syria to militarily control the, the province of Afrin so that they can eventually deport Syrians out of Turkey and back into Syria. You have to wonder what humanitarian aid actually means in this setting, right? It, is it humanitarian aid and is it humanitarian aid for Turks? to protect them from Syrians? Or is it humanitarian aid for Syrians? So offshoring people and, and holding them in camps or turning whole countries like Greece and Turkey into de facto refugee camps um, to keep these people immobilized and to prevent them from reaching Europe, uh, that's what humanitarianism is today. And I think that that's an abject failure. And it's a failure because it doesn't let people resettle and start their lives as autonomous, choosing, 
adults who can make strategies and plans for their own lives. So until you let people do that, until you let them create a home again, the humanitarian aid you're providing is not only ineffective, but profoundly damaging to people. I think it's not aid at all. So this book stands, I think, as an accusation of that um, whole process and says, the help you're giving is not helpful. Thank you. That was a really good last word. Um, thank you for being on the show. It really was a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for having me.